Welcome to The Leader's Notebook with Dr. Mark Rutland. Dr. Rutland is a world-renowned leadership expert. He is a New York Times best-selling author, and he has served as the president of two universities. The Leader's Notebook is brought to you by Global Servants. For more information about Global Servants, please visit our website, globalservants.org. Here is your host, Dr. Mark Rutland. Beginning this morning, a series of four sermons that will begin this morning and then carry forward through Wednesday night and then the next three Wednesday nights, four altogether. It's called Prequels to Calvary. A prequel, there's a, there's a movie that's shown, everybody sees it, it's famous, and then somebody decides to tell the backstory. So they go back and show a, a, a prequel. A sequel comes after, and then the prequel is what's before. So these are prequels to Calvary. And uh, I hope that as you hear this message this morning and sense the Lord, that he will share with you someone, a family, a person, a friend, someone that ought to be in one of these next three Wednesday night services. We're going for evangelism on these. And there are people that you know, you say, oh, I wish they had been there this morning. They can be there Wednesday night or the next Wednesday night or the next Wednesday night to hear these four messages on prequels to Calvary. Now, if you have your Bibles, if you'll take those and turn to the Old Covenant, to the book of Numbers, the book of Numbers. I'm going to begin reading in chapter 21, verses 4 through 9, and then we will turn in the New Covenant to the third chapter of John. Numbers 21, 4 through 9. And they journeyed from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to compass the land of Edom, And the soul of the people was much discouraged because of the way, meaning because of how hard and desert it was. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Wherefore have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in this wilderness? For there is no bread, neither is there any water, and our soul loatheth this light bread. And the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and many people of Israel died. Therefore, the people came to Moses and said, we have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against thee. Pray unto the Lord that he would take away the serpents from us. And Moses prayed for the people, and the Lord said unto Moses, make thee a fiery serpent, out of brass, that is, and set it upon a pole, and it shall come to pass that everyone that looketh, everyone that is bitten, when he looketh upon it, shall live. And Moses made a serpent of brass, of bronze, and put it up on a pole. And it came to pass that if, that if a servant had bitten any man, any person, when he beheld the serpent of bronze, they lived. Now turn, if you will, to John's third cha- chapter, the gospel of John, that is, the third chapter. Now, we're going to put a verse up on the screen, which is certainly the most familiar frequently memorized and oft-quoted passage of Scripture in the entire New Testament, perhaps in the Bible, certainly for Christians. John 3, 16, we're going to put it on the screen and we're going to read it together aloud, if you will. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. I I suspect that 99% of you have that passage committed to memory. Now, here's the issue. Very few people can tell you the two verses that are right before it. So we're going to read verses 14 and 15, John chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. 
And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever, whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Now put your hands on your Bible and let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you and we praise you for your goodness and your mercy. Us were generation after generation. We thank you, Lord, for it. (laughs) And we believe you that this very morning, across the body of your word, you will witness with our hearts and spirits. Come, Holy Ghost. We thank you that your word never goes out void, but that it will accomplish the purpose for which you have intended it. And I believe you for it. In Jesus' name, the strong Son of God. Amen. Amen and amen. Please excuse me. Excuse me. Marco Rubio had to lean over and get water. (laughs) I'm not getting into anything. Stay calm. It's a remarkable story, an absolutely remarkable story of a, of a curse and a cure. Let's deal, first of all, with the issue of the curse. We have this situation of the people of Israel in the wilderness, which they hated, which they despised, and which they chose. They chose to go back into the wilderness rather than to move into the promised land. They're there, they're being fed by God's hand, provided for by God, watched over, protected by God. And their sin is the sin of rebellion and murmuring. They are murmuring against the authority that God has put in their lives, Moses, and they're murmuring against God himself. Now, the sin may be any sin. In this story, in this particular story, it happens to be murmuring and rebellion which God counts as one of the major sins, but it could, be, it could be a major sin like murmuring or rebellion. It could be something minor like murder or armed robbery, but it could be any sin, but the issue is sin. And as a result of their sin, both individually and corporately, God allows to come upon them. They come to a place where evidently the desert is habituated by these snakes, these serpents. And they begin, the snakes begin to, to bite them. Now, the issue of the curse is universal. This is extremely important. This is one of the hardest things in the world for us to come to face. We're far easier with facing the issue of grace than we are with facing the issue of the curse. The curse is absolutely universal. There is no one in either of our facilities, no one who will ever watch this sermon online, no one who will ever hear this, no one in the world who has eluded the curse of sin and death. In fact, the scripture is perfectly clear about this. Romans 3.10 says, there is none righteous, no, not one. Romans 3.23 says, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. This is one of the things that makes it so easy to preach in a prison. I've preached in prisons on multiple continents all over the world. I love to preach in prisons. I've been to jails. I love to preach there. One of the reasons I love to preach there is you never have to convince a convict that he sinned. 
The stripe down the side of his leg says you've sinned. The alarm that tells him when to get up and when to eat and when to go to work and when to shower and when to go to bed says you've sinned. The bars that he holds on to to listen to you preach say you've sinned. The guard that walks outside his cell to make sure that he's there says you've sinned. He knows he's sinned. But it can be very difficult for somebody who's lived a pretty decent life, hasn't beaten up anybody or killed anybody or stolen or embezzled anything, lives in a nice air-conditioned house, drives an air-conditioned car to work, works in an air-conditioned office, comes to a nice air-conditioned church like this. Sometimes it can be difficult for them to say to them, look in the mirror and say, I've sinned and I deserve to go to hell if I died right now. You ever hear people say this? Don't, don't ever say this. Don't ever say this. You ever hear people say this? I just want what's coming to me. <laughs> Not me. What's coming to us, what we all deserve. If we never ever ask for what you deserve. What you deserve is death and hell because every single one of us has sinned. Religion won't fix anything. A good life won't fix anything. It's this, such a simple part of this little message, but it's so important if you can ever once just look in the mirror and say, I have sinned and my sin has separated me from God and from righteousness and by that sin and through the inherited sin of, of original sin, I deserve to die and go to hell. Once you can ever say that, then you can say the judgment of sin and death is overall. Imagine that horrible scene where, where those snakes come among the people, slithering through the edges of the tents, going in where the families are. Imagine the people screaming and crying out. A, a, a woman screams, my, my child, my child's been bitten. Somebody help me. A man writhing in pain. I'm dying, I'm dying. The whole camp, imagine the first one and then another who becomes aware of the fact through the snake bite that they, have, that they are under the judgment of sin and death. Those who were not bitten may think that they've eluded the curse. But the fact of the matter is the curse of sin and death is in the camp. Those whose lives are snake bitten are more aware of the pain of sin and death, but it is absolutely universal. Now, the second thing is this, the cure. This is really amazing. The people come to Moses and they say, we've sinned. They confess it. We've sinned. They immediately connect what's happening to them, these serpents, the death, the poison. They immediately connect that with what they've done wrong. We've sinned. We murmured against you. We murmured against God. And now sin and death has come upon us. Please pray for us that we might be healed. And God, Moses goes to God and God says to Moses, he says, make a brass serpent, put it on a stick of some kind and hold it up. And anybody that's bitten by a snake that will look at that brass serpent will be healed. Now that's a remarkable story for more than one reason. But one of the reasons is it seems on the surface to violate one of the 10 commandments. Thou shalt make no graven images. In fact, remember, one of the previous times when the nation has been judged and punished by God was because they made and worshiped a golden calf. Well, there are several distinctions here. 
One is that the brass serpent itself is not to become an object of worship. Indeed, later on during the period of the judges, it does become an object of idolatrous worship and and the punishment again comes. But it's not to become an object of idolatrous worship. It is to become a way for them to put into effect before the cross a prequel of saving faith. That's, that is what it's supposed to be about. Now, let's look at the cure. Um, the First of all, the cure is God wrought. Moses didn't think of this. The people didn't think of it. God said, make a serpent and put it on a stick and hold it up. The salvation that is ours through Jesus Christ was God-initiated, God-created, God-dreamed up. We didn't cause it. We didn't create it. We can't help with it. We don't even, none of us even fully understands it. Regardless of what any preacher ever tells you, you nor I nor anyone else can dilate our intellect wide enough to comprehend the full implications of God's redemptive plan for the universe. We do not fully understand the cross. We don't fully understand the blood. We don't fully, and we may teach about it. We may preach about it. But there are incomprehensible mysteries surrounding the God-designed plan for our salvation through the cross of Jesus Christ. This is a God-wrought cure. The second thing is this. It is miraculous. It's supernatural. This is unexplainable. Make a brass serpent. Hold it up. Anybody that gets bitten by a snake, look on that brass serpent and you'll be healed. The cross of Jesus Christ is absolutely supernatural. In fact, apart from supernatural faith, it's incomprehensible. 1 Corinthians 1 and 18 says, to those who can't believe, the cross is foolishness. The preaching of the cross seems foolish. I've sinned. I'm going to hell when I die. Here's another man that died 2,000 years ago. They put him up on a cross. If I look on that with faith and believe in my heart, I can go to heaven when I die. That's just foolish. People dismiss it as foolishness. But to them that believe, it is the very answer to our sin and the promise of life eternal. So the cure for our poison, for the snake bite of sin and death, is first of all, God wrought. God thought up our answer. Secondly, it's miraculous or supernatural. The third is, it's unalloyed. They didn't do anything else. They didn't add anything. Moses didn't say to them. Imagine if Moses had said, I'm going to hold up this brass serpent. If you get bit by a snake, look at the brass serpent then take two aspirin and call me in the morning. (laughs) There's nothing that could be added to it. Only that. There was no other means. There's no other way. Only that. Now, this, this is interesting. Listen to how Satan twists things around. God says, the world is sin. There's not one righteous. No, not one. Everyone has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There's no way that they can make their way back to me. You can't build a bridge across sin. You can't pay God for one millisecond of sin. You have no way home, no way back. And God says, I will make a way. I will provide a way. I'll think of it myself. I'll provide it. It'll be supernatural. I'll take care of it myself. And people say, it's so arrogant for Christians to say there's only one way to God. How arrogant that is. You know what real arrogance is to say? God provides a way and I demand more choices. That's arrogant. God doesn't give you a menu. This, this, is, this, is, this, is, not a, 
This is not a menu. You don't walk up to the counter and say, well, I don't know, I'll take a little bit of the cross and maybe some works and righteousness. Oh, I'm religion. I'll take some religion on the side in the salad. There is only one choice, and it's unalloyed. There's nothing you can add. On the good side, there's nothing you need to add. There's nothing. You come empty-handed and brokenhearted. There's nothing that you can add to make this work better. It's God. The cure is God wrought. The cure is miraculous. It's supernatural. It's unalloyed. And finally, now listen to this. This is very important. It's a little bit of a subtle theological point, but we need to hear this. It is open to all, but it is not universal. That's extremely important. That is to say, imagine, we don't know this from Scripture, but just imagine when Moses said, if you've been bitten by a snake, I'm going to hold up this brass serpent up in the air, and when you look at it in faith, you will be healed. But what if somebody in the room said, this is stupid, I don't understand it, and I'm not looking. I'm not looking. That person is not covered by the, by the work of, of, that God has thought up. That, per, that person's not covered. So when we say Jesus died for all, that's true. The, the offer of the cross is universal. The application of the cross is only to those who will effectuate the finished work of the cross through their participation, which is by faith and faith alone. In other words, you cannot say, if Jesus died for all, he died for me, no matter how I live, no matter what I believe, no matter what I do, all my rebellion, sin, everything else, I'm not looking at the cross, I'm not believing, I'm not having faith, I'm not getting saved, but I know that I'm going to heaven when I die because Jesus died for all. It's universalism, and it's not only, it is not only an error, it's a damnable error, and it will cause more people to go to hell than harlotry. I renounce universalism. Universalism is, is not of God. What is of God is the universal opportunity to come to the cross. That invitation is open to all. Now let's think about, let's think about that scene. We imagined the scene of the snake bites. Now imagine the scene of healing and restoration. Imagine people screaming, crying out, help me, save me, heal me, deliver me. This, this serpent has bitten me. This snake is, has bitten my child. Imagine that horrible scene. Now imagine as Moses lifts up that, that brass serpent and he says, look, look up here, look up here. Imagine as the poison begins to drain out of their bodies. Imagine people crying out, I'm healed. I'm healed. I'm saved. It's over. The snakes are gone. I, I'm delivered. I'm free. Can you imagine that moment? It's because God is giving us a prequel. It's like he says, thousands of years from now, thousands of years from now, you can't see it now. You can't imagine it now. Here in the desert, here with these snakes, you can't imagine. But thousands of years from now, another will be lifted up. Not a serpent, but a man lifted up in the wilderness of godless moment. He will be lifted up and every person that will look on him and believe shall be saved of the snake bite poison of sin and death. Imagine what the wonderful reality as Jesus himself points to this moment. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the son of man, so must I also be lifted up that whosoever believe on me would not die but have everlasting life. Now, let's talk about the cross. 
The first is the, is the curse itself, sin and death. The second is the cure, but the third is the cross itself. Now, this is the part that is the most difficult to comprehend. Scripture says, him who knew no sin became sin for our sakes, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Christ. Now, listen to this. I cannot imagine the physical horror of the cross. I can't even begin to grasp that. I don't believe anyone who's ever been tortured as horrible as torture is could understand what Jesus endured in his passion and that his, his body flayed open with the whips of the Romans. The, the crown of thorns pressed into his forehead till blood blinded his own eyes. I can't even begin to imagine the nightmare of torture, the physical pain. The book of Isaiah says that he was tortured so badly that he didn't even look human anymore. Imagine the horror of it physically. Secondly, I cannot begin to imagine the psychological and emotional horror of the cross. It says that Jesus was humiliated, publicly crucified, naked, hung on a cross between two criminals. Imagine the sense of loneliness and separation and desertion and betrayal. He looked at the foot of the cross. Where, where's Simon Peter? Where's my best friend? Where's my friend? Gone, betrayed, denied me, and hiding under his bed while I die on the cross. Imagine that. Imagine looking down and seeing his mother crying and weeping as had been prophesied over her that a sword would pierce her heart. He sees her there devastated, looking at her son, hanging on the cross like a criminal, dying and bleeding to death. I can't imagine the emotional and psychological horror of that moment. But those things pale. They are nothing compared to the third curse of the cross. Why was that serpent on the cross? Because the serpent became a symbol of the sin, the rebellion, and the judgment of God. When we look at the cross, we want to talk about the mercy of God and the grace of God and the salvation of God. But the cross, the mercy of God in the cross is not comprehensible unless we understand that it is also a place of judgment. All of the judgment that has ever been ours, all that should have been visited upon us, all that we deserve was visited upon one man. He became the symbol of our judgment. We say, I deserve that. Furthermore, there's a supernatural element. If he became sin for our sakes, now think about, it. imagine if just the sin at Free Chapel Church, just the sin our wicked thoughts, our untoward motives, our evil actions, our hidden agendas, if all those suddenly came up out of us and gathered in some kind of a cloud over our heads, imagine what it would look like. Imagine how horrible, imagine how ghastly and sickening it would be. Imagine how huge and dark it would be. Imagine that. Now imagine every sin that has ever been committed since Adam and Eve. For every person in all the world, in all of human history for thousands of years, imagine that cloud. Now imagine all the sin that ever will be committed until the end of time. Imagine all the sins that will ever be committed by every person everywhere in the whole world from Adam and Eve to the rapture of the church. Imagine that cloud being assembled somehow in some kind of ineluctable mass, some kind of palpable storm cloud of evil. And horror, now imagine that somehow that is wound into some kind of a column and fixed into a ball and Jesus hangs on the cross and all of that throughout all of eternity is fastened 
right into his body and that he becomes the sin of humanity. Imagine the horror of that. Who has never sinned, ever and ever known a moment of separation from God, who has been with God and is God from before time began and always will be, who in that moment experiences, if he just experienced my sin alone, I can't imagine the nightmare. But not mine alone, but the sin of the whole world and all the world as it's ever been or ever will be is all fastened into his body. And he cries out from the cross in that horrible, God-forsaken desert moment, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He experienced all of that so that we don't ever have to experience it. He died so that we don't have to die. He experienced our judgment so we don't stand under judgment. We've got to... We've got to get behind this. We've got to see this. The cross is not simply some kind of nifty Christian symbol. It is the serpent lifted up in the wilderness that whosoever will may look upon him and believe and judgment and death and hell are gone from us eternally and we can know that we live and walk with him not only in this life but in heaven to come. Hallelujah to the Lamb. The picture of death and horror and judgment and sin on the cross suddenly becomes the picture of my way back home. Isn't it wonderful to know that God does not send some secret message? We're not, we're not waiting on somebody to decipher some weird message that's hidden somewhere that God has made it public. He's made it as full, as complete, as open as he knows how to make. It's clear. It's, it's understandable. Just as the serpent was lifted up, if you will just look on the cross and believe, it's yours. The problem is really believing the goodness of God that no matter where I've been, no matter what I've done, no matter how good I think I am, Oh, no matter how evil I think I am or somebody has told me I am, that the way back home is open. Many years ago, when people still traveled more than they do even now, in trains, many years ago, there was a young boy that was on a train and just sitting very still, a little cardboard box on his lap, and next to him was an elderly minister. As they got closer and closer to the next stop, the boy became increasingly nervous. Finally, the conductor came through the car and he cried out, next stop, Smithfield. And the boy just jumped. The old preacher said, son, are you all right? He said, oh, I just, I dread this. He said, I can't tell you how I dread this. The old minister said, you know, I, I happen to be a minister of the gospel. I, can I help you in some way? And the boy said, well, there is something you can do. He said, I, I just ran off and left my family. I deserted them. He said, I went to New York City and I fell into sin. And he said, I, I committed crime and I got caught. I've just done five and a half years in Sing Sing. He said, I, I'm on my way either to my home or on to California. He said, I, I, I sent my dad a telegram and I told him I'll be on such and such a train, this one. He said, the last curve before we enter Smithfield 
we go right past my dad's farm. And he said, there's a little dirt road there and my dad's mailbox is right out there and I can see it plain from this train. He said, I, I, I wired my dad and said, if you want me to get off in Smithfield and come back to the farm, put a, just tie a little white hanky on the mailbox. He said, I know it's not gonna be there. He said, I, I, I just can't stand to look. He said, you wanna help me, preacher? He said, when we go around the next bend, look over to the right and see if that hanky is tied on that mailbox. If it is, fine. If it's not, it's what I figured anyway. It's what I deserve. The train slowed for the bend. And as it did, the old preacher said, look, son, open your eyes, look. And the boy looked out the window and on all the fences, there were bedsheets laid out on all the fences. In the trees, there were bedsheets. All along the road, there were bedsheets. And out by the railroad track, there was an old man with a bedsheet and he was waving it like this as the train came around. You see, your heavenly father is not sending tiny little messages to a select few that only the mysteriously minded can understand. He's standing at the foot of the cross saying, come this way, come this way. Come on home, come on home, he says. You've been listening to The Leader's Notebook with Dr. Mark Rutland. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review today's podcast. You can follow Dr. Rutland on Twitter at Dr. Mark Rutland or visit his website, drmarkrutland.com. Join us next week for another episode of The Leader's Notebook.